Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, I'll be speaking with Suzanne Sutherland, Associate Professor of History at Middle Tennessee State University. We will be discussing her new book, The Rise of the Military Entrepreneur, War, Diplomacy, and Knowledge in the Habsburg Europe, published by Cornell University Press. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Suzanne, could you start the interview by telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. So I uh, got my PhD in history from Stanford. I I worked with uh, Dr. Paula Finlan. Um, Before I started the PhD, though, in between my bachelor's and my PhD, I lived in Europe for a few years, and the inspiration for this topic really came out of that experience and then what I learned working with Paula at Stanford. I lived in Prague um, about three years, and what I found I was really interested in when I lived there was all of this Italian influence in Central Europe, architecture, art. I noticed it all over the place, Italian Renaissance and Baroque styles, and I developed this fascination with it. How did it get there? Who were the people who brought it there? And I I realized pretty quickly that this took me to the 17th century and this period of warfare. Um, I just became really interested in trying to understand that cultural exchange and, you know, foreigners at another time, kind of like me, who had come to Central Europe and, and, you know, and then they had had this big impact on the culture. Um, So that's really, that's really the background. All right. Um, can you describe or explain who or what a military entrepreneur was in the early modern era? So a military entrepreneur was a kind of military contractor. And you could say that this is one of the oldest professions in the world. Um, it's really always been with us. But as the conditions of the surrounding societies change, this job changes as well. So for the late 16th century and the 17th century, historians tend to use the term military entrepreneur to explain what this kind of contractor figure was doing in the environment of the late 16th and the 17th centuries. And what was going on was just a new age of war, a new economic age with new kinds of credit networks and credit possibilities. So We had multiple armies operating on multiple fronts, rulers who did not have really um, effective or consistent standing forces. So they relied on these noblemen who served as military entrepreneurs to basically um, bring the forces to them and help serve them in these wars. And these individuals were just responsible for a huge range of activities from the initial recruitment, the finance, logistics, training, command. So when you think of military contractors today, you often think of somebody contracted for a specific service. But at this time, they were really multidimensional. They they were doing whatever it took 
to get these troops in the field and to try to be successful. So um, he, the other thing was that, you know, rulers couldn't repay them in cash usually. So they ended up repaying them with political power, you know, positions at court, um, territory, new titles. And so they became very politically powerful. Again, a big difference to other eras. This was the great age of military contracting where you could even aspire to becoming a prince. And, um, and finally, it's really distinguished by their access to credit. That changed the job a, a lot because you could, you basically, they were all noblemen of various sorts, but they were often the poorer sort of noblemen because with access to credit networks, it really took a relatively small amount of startup cash to get loans and then to be able to raise troops and go out into the field. So it provided opportunities for a lot more noblemen to um, enter the fray and try to make something of themselves. So you specifically look at uh, Italian men of service to the Habsburg Empire. Um, what drew you specifically to these individuals? So, again, this goes back to my experience living in uh, Prague, which, of course, was the capital of the historic kingdom of Bohemia. And Bohemia was the area where probably, you know, at the start of the Thirty Years' War, so much land changed hands and offices changed hands because the Thirty Years' War broke out there um, when Protestant rebels deposed um Ferdinand II, Emperor Ferdinand II, but he was deposed as King of Bohemia um, and elected Frederick V in his place. This is what triggered the war. And after 1620, the Battle of White Mountain, those rebels were punished. Property was confiscated. Um, their titles and offices were confiscated. And then they were redistributed to the people who had supported the Habsburgs. And many of those were military entrepreneurs. And so... Um, the main figure I studied, Montecuccoli, was not part of that group, but he was. He came a little bit later, but his patrons, the the men who were about you know ten years older than him or ten years ahead of him, had really benefited from that. And um, sorry, and so I I really see the Italian influx into Bohemia, you know, really kind of inspiring. Um, this is the beginning of the story for me. All right. Great. Um, so you also talk about how um, the military entrepreneurs of the 17th century can be traced back to Renaissance Italy and some men who contracted their services to other rulers and princes. Can you explain the connection or evolution from Renaissance contractors to the entrepreneurs of the 17th century? Yeah. So I think it's a really fascinating story, and it's the Renaissance condottieri, of course, is a great figure of the Renaissance. Um, this was the central figure that Burkhart used to describe the Renaissance as this modern um, phenomenon. <clears throat> and then in traditional historiography, this figure kind of disappears, or you know, they become integrated into local states. They serve local princess uh, princes, sorry. And become, you know, quote unquote, domesticated. What I found really interesting is um, 
realizing that those careers actually didn't end, that after, uh, in the late 16th century, the Spanish Habsburgs achieved political domination in the Italian peninsula, and this really opened up a new imperial field for Italian condottieri or contractors to continue these careers, but in service to different Habsburg rulers, um, the Spanish, but then with especially the era of the Thirty Years' War, the Austrian Habsburg branch became a focus because there were just so many opportunities in Central Europe, and they were ideologically aligned as Catholics. Um, so the tradition continues. Certainly, some of them become loyal servants of, of different states. But, but what I find so fascinating is that the families kind of operate in a collective sense. And so one might stay home in, um, at the, in the Duchy of Modena, for example, and continue to serve the, the local Este family. And another member of the family will go off and serve in a Habsburg army abroad and attempt to advance in another court hierarchy. So um, it's a fascinating world of opportunity um, across Europe for these figures. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so you already kind of mentioned the importance of Prague and your time there and how this inspired you. And this is also where, as you mentioned, the Thirty Years' War begins, and you talk about the White Mountain generation. So who were the White Mountain generation, and how did these entrepreneurs and of this of this generation finance their regiments to fight in the Thirty Years' War. Sure, <clears throat> the White Mountain generation. Um, I I think about individuals who actually served at the Battle of White Mountain in the Catholic armies. Um, it this would include a figure like Ottavio Piccolomini, who becomes a patron a patron of Monte Cucoli, who's the main figure of my book. Um. The battle had drawn a lot of different military entrepreneurs and mercenaries who were the kind of common common soldier under their command from across Europe. Um, and Italians represented a, a pretty good-sized contingent, and especially in the officer class. So partly they were men who were actually on the battlefield that day. But I extend it to include basically everyone in this larger um, cultural envir environment who was inspired by word or news of the battle. I mean, it was broadcast across Italy. Everybody was talking about it. This was seen as divine intervention. Um, it was in, you know, the Avisi, the newspaper, local um, pamphlet news. And, and it really, in the years that followed, inspired a lot more Italian noblemen and other foreign Catholic noblemen to rush off to Central Europe and join these victorious Catholic forces, because this was clearly the place where you were going to make a name for yourself and for your family. This was clearly where the glory was going to happen. And so <clears throat> they financed their activities through the use of family wealth, um, loans from merchants and from other nobles. The aristocratic credit system was probably the most important uh, place for them to, to get loans. And and then, of course, contributions, which were war taxes exacted on the populace. So they absolutely depended on uh, coerc coercion, right, forcing local people to pay. And in, in this way, it was really unsustainable because they had to pay back their loans. 
to their creditors. And the, the way they did that was by e extracting resources from local peoples, but these peoples were, you know, increasingly impoverished and starving. It, it was not a sustainable <laughs> practice. They couldn't continue to do this. So it was going, you know, as the Thirty Years' War went on, this, these practices did have to be reformed and changed to some degree. All right. Um, so is the White Mountain Generation that you describe in your book only, do you use that just to describe Italian entrepreneurs, or is this for all those of Central Europe? I would describe Catholics who were called to, um, basically called to war and inspired and I focus on Italians because they were a disproportionately large group of um, officers. So it, it's surprising how many officers in the Imperial Army were of Italian origin, and they were all interconnected to one another. So they did think of themselves as Italian. Um, they used Italian language, and they had all these Italian court connections to one another. So I, it was instrumental to their success and is an important way for me to think about them as a group. But I would I, I generally think of Catholic noblemen across Europe because it wasn't only Italians. Um, but it's the earliest generation of the war. And then the book will, as we can maybe talk about later, wraps up with the generation of 1683. And one of the things that I I try to do throughout the book is think about these groups in terms of generations because they're members of families. Um, in, in a way, it's a, a, it helps me to re-periodize um, to think in terms, th think about time in terms of actual people operating as members of family, families, and different generations of experience. Yeah, I found it a really useful way to think about uh, the military entrepreneurs. Um, and one of your, or the main entrepreneur that you discuss, as you've mentioned, is Monte Capoli. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about his background and his family and how he became uh, a military entrepreneur? Sure. Yeah, he's such a fascinating individual. And I think it really helped me get into this research because he was so multidimensional. There was, there was so much to learn from him. He came from, he was a middling nobleman. He wasn't particularly rich or powerful. He came from his family came from the mountains outside of Modena. Um, his father died in a feud, you know, when he was young, around 10 years old. And so his mother ended up moving to the Este court to Modena and helped, you know, um, basically offering her sons to the Este and, and trying to get in good with the Este as patrons for protection. So he ends up growing up at court. He, I think, grew up alongside Francesco I, who then became the Duke of Modena when he, he was getting started in the army. Francesco then um, became Duke of Modena at about that time. So he was close, you know, from probably boyhood to the Duke of Modena. Um, he eventually became commander-in-chief of the Austrian army, and he was one of the most powerful men in Vienna. So he made this extraordinary leap from, you know, the mountains, being a feuding Italian family in the mountains, in the Apennine Mountains, to court at Modena. And from there, he got to Central Europe and eventually made his way to the top, the very, very top of this 
imperial imperial hierarchy. So it's a truly astounding story. Um, it's surprising in many ways. And of course, part of the benefit of living a long life and not dying on the battlefield, <laughs> you know, a lot of men actually died or, or suffered debilitating injury, but he managed to survive and he managed to make the right decisions and position himself so that he achieved this spectacular position of power. And that's what the story I'm trying to explain and understand. Yeah, he's a very fascinating figure, as uh, we'll hear more about. Um, so what were his experiences like at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War um, until as uh, he gets he gets captured at some point? But what was it like before then? Um, and what does his experience kind of demonstrate to us about the military military entrepreneurs in the Thirty Years' War? So he comes in and really starts in the 1630s. That's he misses the first decade. He starts in the late 1620s, but he doesn't really achieve c command until the 1630s. So he misses the initial windfalls that happen after um, White Mountain and the Habsburgs are pretty victorious, right, in the 1620s. He kind of misses out on that. His patrons win out. And so he gets access, he has access to them, these Italian patrons who serve under, you know, Wallenstein and are doing very well. Um, so he's got connections. It's very, very important. He's got Italian connections in the Imperial Army, but it is very difficult. It's clear that it is chaotic. It is not at all easy. He is struggling. He has a relative who is a top general, Ernesto Montecuccoli, and certainly benefits from that. But he can't, he's, he struggles to, to gain the kind of command position that he really needs, which is ownership of a regiment. That's when the true, you can start to build the true wealth and position once you get ownership of a regiment. Um, a couple of instances, he, he tried to get ownership of a regiment. He travels to Vienna. He is, gets an audience with the emperor. He has promised a certain person's regiment. He goes back out into the field, <laughs> travels back. And it's already been given away to somebody else. I mean, it's not systematic. It's it's not like the emperor has as much control in, on the ground because communications are slow. And those, he really needed to have good relationships on the ground in the army. And he needed to, he needed to progress there as well as at court. But fundamentally at the start, he had to figure out how to advance in the army itself with these patrons. So it was tough. And he was um, he was imprisoned. Um, he was detained prior to his extended imprisonment. And all of that, anything that took him away from the action, he could he could just lose everything he'd gained. He these these guys had to pay their own ransoms. So he would constantly fall back on the Este family because they had connections in Central Europe and in the Imperial Army. So he, he, including family members, Este family members who had their own regiments. And so if he was out, if he had no position, he would go back to them and say, you know, ask to be taken in basically and absorbed um, and, and, you know, go along with them in their regiment until he could find another position. So he was surviving. And, and a lot of these figures, they complain quite a bit. It's, it sounds like it's, it is a very difficult job. Would you say it's more important to have like connections in the military or have a sponsorship of the emperor to advance your place as a military entrepreneur? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think at a certain point, he absolutely needed the court connections and not just the emperor, but other members of the Habsburg family and the most important Central European uh, magnate clans. He did have to, he did definitely have to cross over a border into this <laughs> zone of high influence in Vienna. Um, initially, though, I would say in the 1630s, he was especially just trying to get control of one or more regiments. And then it's um, later when he, for him to really get to the top of the hierarchy, he needs those closer Habsburg connections. He had to get married. He, he wanted and he eventually succeeded in marrying into the Dietrichstein clan. Absolutely critical for his advancement in Vienna. And he became very close to Archduke Leopold Wilhelm. But that was, that was at the end of the Thirty Years' War. And then that was in the 1650s after the Thirty Years' War, also extremely critical for his um, advancement to the top. Um, so he gets captured in 1639, um, I believe, by the Swedes. And he spends uh, much of his time reading and writing about the art of war. Um, what did he write and theorize about uh, while he was a prisoner. Yeah, so this was a terrible moment for him, and it was very long. It, you know, he was in prison for quite a few years. Um, it could really spell disaster um, because he lost, you know, the regiments he'd been in command of. He had to pay um, his ransom. He had to figure out how to even pay. Often they're paying for their own keep while they're imprisoned. Um so it's cut off his military career in terms of the battlefield. And he decides, well, the only thing I can really do is read and, and maybe I can write about my experience and provide this to a potential patron. He talks about wanting to account for what he was doing during this period away from the battlefield. So writing, reading and writing about war was a way to account for himself. Um, so he, he writes a treatise which is, you know, basically he tries to define the principles of war, much of which he does absorb from other writers like Machiavelli or Lipsius. He studies the Roman army. He's very interested in the, this literary art of war and um, studying it and then kind of parroting it. But what he wants to do is make it as systematic, more systematic. He gets much more systematic later on. He's trying to take all this knowledge and make it more systematic and then really relate it to his actual experience on the battlefields of the Thirty Years' War. So he is putting in examples that come out of actual Thirty Years' War experience. So it's an interesting, it's probably the, a more literary treatise compared to later treatises. He, he tends to develop, uh, tries to become more and more systematic and pithy with his maxims. This is the era in which drill uh, manuals are developing. So you can see it's a more pedagogical style. So this evolution from the art of war represented by a figure like Machiavelli, who's writing a Renaissance you know, dialogue, to a more systematic, manual-esque, um, pedagogical genre. And this is his first foray into that. He uh, discusses the use of mathematics. Um, he is obviously inspired by the scientific revolution and the and Galileo Galilean science he talks about um 
empiricism. So he's on this kind of more, more scientific track, and this is something that he'll continue to develop in his writings. Very, very interesting uh, description about also how his life kind of just reflects this changing, you know, as you mentioned, the art of war to a more scientific uh, approach. Um, after his release from imprisonment, he goes back to Italy. Um, he's leading soldiers there. And then he goes back to in the, to the service of the emperor. And is this kind of a normal path for military entrepreneurs? Would they go back to, uh, I mean, in his case, Italy to an, or to another place and then go back to the emperor? Was this a common uh, thing for military entrepreneurs to do? Yeah, I think for some of them, it definitely was. I mean, Italy, there was the, the War of Castro, but other than that, it was a much more pacified region. And so if you wanted experience at war, you had to travel. And there were so many different opportunities out there across Europe during this era. So people really did travel and um, move from army to army. Oftentimes, um, what would happen is an Italian nobleman would travel to the imperial army, gain some experience, and come back home and get a position in a local government or as the general of, you know, papal forces or um, of a, one of the armies in Italy. And then it kind of helped him advance in a way he couldn't have done if he'd stayed home because there weren't enough opportunities to gain this experience. Monte Cucoli is somewhat unusual in that you know, he does consider coming back permanently, but he keeps getting these opportunities in Central Europe and he keeps advancing. He keeps succeeding. It's much harder to um, move to Central Europe on a permanent basis through warfare. I would say the back and forth is pretty common, but to actually stay and be really successful is the more unusual part. So, um, but it's, again, he's a super successful, but everything he does a lot of a whole lot of other people are doing very similar things to him and and to us of course it's strange to imagine people going back and forth and serving in different armies but we have to remember that they were that his family did consider themselves to be vassals of the holy roman emperor who was the Habsburg ruler and um they thought of themselves as part of a larger empire and they were all catholic so the italians generally overwhelmingly served in Catholic armies. Um, Central European families might have members serving in Protestant or Catholic armies. They might they, they were more splintered, but the Italians were uniform, noblemen at least, were uniformly Catholic. So they did have loyalties. And what I see as the century goes on is they're quite loyal to the Habsburgs. They might actually... <laughs> betray their own patrons in Italy a little bit, right? They may not do what their, you know, Monte Cucoli's lord, Francesco d'Este, he wanted him to come back and stay in Modena. He did support him going off and getting the experience in Central Europe. He supported that, absolutely. It was good for him too. But he wanted Monte Cucoli to come back. And eventually Monte Cucoli just said, no. I mean, he made excuses. He said, it's not, it's out of my control. I can't, it's really not my choice. I would serve you if I could. But it was his choice. And he, he chose to stay with the Habsburgs. And he never, ever uh, betrayed the Habsburgs. It, loyalty to the Habsburgs was just absolutely number one, um, most important to him. So did um, many, 
is this a common, I guess, ex well, I don't know how common, but he's called to come back, but he wants to stay and fight for the emperor. Is this something that many entrepreneurs have to deal with? Was Montecoli a special situation? Um, did you, How did you define your, I mean, did they have to make their own decisions about how to define their loyalty to local or to imperial? Uh, it seems a, a very, you know, complex tug and pull from lots of directions. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there was a whole lot of gray area. I think it's interesting because they sometimes use the language of vassalage. They are vassals. Um, they are subjects. At other times, they're clearly clients and they see themselves, you know, they're signing contracts with different rulers and there's this market out there, but it's it's never the impersonal market. Um, so they have different ways, I think, of conceiving how they move around between rulers. And I think they're all kind of legitimate. And um, so so it's very interesting. As long as they, you know, don't go off and serve a Protestant, <laughs> there are certain boundaries, right? They, they stay within the bounds of this Catholic um, imperial world. Now, some Italians did serve France, which was an enemy, right, of the Bourbon dynasty, was an enemy of the Habsburg dynasty. So there is some of that. Um, but yeah, I would say there's quite a lot of movement. Um, but where I probably see the most stability is just, you know, looking at the family and the family is trying to build a, a strong network and they need a certain amount of trust. Um, they do have to be careful about their reputation. So you know, it's not an entirely impersonal. Um, these are not easy decisions. They're treading very, very carefully, and they're very concerned about looking like they are loyal. Um, you can trust them, and you can trust them with high office. Great. Um, so what happens to military entrepreneurs once the 30 years war is over, and what specifically did uh, Montecoli do? He was kind of at a loss. He had trouble after the end of the Thirty Years' War, um, <clears throat> and he complains about it in his letters. He uses this phrase, everything is overturned, um, and he's referring to what's going on in Vienna and kind of the reordering of um, power and authority now that the war is over. You would think well, this creates peace and stability. To the military entrepreneur, everything is overturned. You know, we had established ways of doing things, and now it's more even worse, you know, than before. Um, some nobles in Vienna are trying to take over the control of the of mil military uh, matters, and they don't know what they're doing. Uh, he didn't have it, his his pension was reduced. You know, he had a he had a certain he, he did have. Uh, money you know from from the court but it changed it wasn't consistent it was reduced he he needed to find another job he was looking in other armies he was at he was interested in the army of flanders and in venice he got an offer to serve there um he really wanted to stick with the Habsburgs, though he was trying to to stay on that path he would often you know he would ask he would re request um money and positions and um he would often feel like he wasn't getting what he deserved and then just before he was going to leave just asked to be you know to to be excused he was going to go back to italy the emperor would often or some patron in vienna would find him something to do 
1653, he was actually appointed an imperial diplomat to Queen Christina of Sweden. (laughs) He traveled to Sweden. And then he was part of this really fantastic episode where she actually abdicated the Swedish, Swedish throne, moved to the Spanish Netherlands, converted secretly at first to Catholicism, and then later moved to Rome. She was, nobody fully understands what she was doing. She was such an exciting and fascinating figure. Um, he was part of this. He was the imperial diplomat sent to be at her side in these various locations to try to discern what was going on. She also seemed to want him. She requested him and used him as a as an agent to communicate with um, Hopsburg patrons. So he was he suddenly became a diplomat in this very interesting, unusual uh, situation after the Thirty Years' War. Of course, nobody knew if war was about to break out again. So his people like Christina or like the emperor wanted to keep keep him around, right? Um, but he certainly had to now become a courtly figure. He he needed all the skills of the courtier, which, of course, he'd studied um, and he was good at. Turns out one of the reasons he was successful was because he was a wonderful courtier. Um, Queen Christina grew very close to him, and I think this really helped his international profile. I mean, there were rumors that they were even getting married, which never happened. <laughs> but there were all kinds of rumors out there. And he so he was becoming famous in this through this unusual episode. Um it was dip, diplomacy really was the bridge, though, from battlefield to court. It was the way for these figures to um, test themselves at court and establish a name for themselves and, and, you know, show that they can handle diplomatic missions and court life and court politics. What that particular mission did for him, I think, more than anything else, was helped him continue to uh, pursue a relationship to Archduke Leopold Wilhelm, who was the governor general of the Spanish Netherlands at that time. And so he would meet with Leopold Wilhelm as often as possible and um, discuss the army of Flanders and the sad state of affairs. You know, he, they became very, very close at that time. And then I think Leopold Wilhelm was instrumental when he went back to Vienna in helping him. Um, succeed further. Of course, he was the uncle, you know, of and the um, very influential over Leopold I, who then became emperor shortly after that. Leopold Wilhelm died, but he really, I think, set Montecuccoli up for success, um, helped him pay back some loans, you know, it, those ties to important court figures that help you, um, you know, deal even with financial aspects of of war yeah it sounds like uh these military entrepreneurs often were in debt you talked about his pension being reduced um was it common for them to end up in debt or did were they able to eventually i mean their goal was to as middling nobles to advance was that possible for most of them it's a great question. They were heavily indebted. I think that is something that we see in many cases that they d- did not necessarily personally benefit financially. Um, some of them did. And Wallenstein is the great example of someone who benefited enormously and gained so much wealth and, and territory, but he was assassinated. You know, he rose very, very high and then he fell very, very far. Um, so he's a very exceptional figure. That kind of success was not really 
going to happen again. Um, so yeah, a lot of them were in debt, including Monte Cucoli. But what I learned from really closely following his life and the story of his family was that this was a family business. This was a larger enterprise. It was larger than himself alone. So I I got the strong sense that they were um, they knew they were they believed they were going to benefit eventually. <laughs> so even if any a, a single figure may not have achieved the kind of wealth that he hoped to achieve, he had certainly advanced his family's interests and his nephew was coming right up behind him, you know, and it, it was, there was a collective sense of success across generations that they were, they were helping to establish. And of course they, it's, it's also really hard to calculate exactly how wealthy they were because they had a lot of unreported wealth gifts. And this is something that I talk about in the epilogue because Monte Cucli is accused of corruption, like a lot of people were, and he tries to defend his record. But it's clear that he, from what he says, that he's received a lot of gifts. Um, but we may never know how much, you know, money he had. All right. Interesting. So um, he gets back to uh, court um, and he finds himself at war again helping to defend the Habsburgs against the Ottomans. Um, how did he do as a general in the Imperial Army? And were there similarities and differences between this, what was going on in the 1660s and with the Thirty Years' War for uh, military entrepreneurs? Yeah, what I love about this life and looking at these generations is being able to bridge the Thirty Years' War to the later Habsburg-Ottoman Wars. Um, as they've kind of in traditional periodization, they're kind of in two different periods, separated by 1648, Peace of Westphalia. But they're the same figures, actually, um, many of the same figures served in wars from the 1620s to the 1660s, or, you know, in that's Monte Cucli's case, at least. So there's this outbreak of war with the Ottomans, 1663 to 1664. And this is terrifying because the Ottomans were um, the most powerful um, force, right? They had the most powerful and the largest army in Europe, and they were invading, intent on invading um, Habsburg lands. So he he was, he made this jump to then fighting against the Ottomans on the Eastern Front. A lot of similarities, differences as well. The problems were many of them the same, poor communications, logistics. I mean, this was much harder in the Eastern European front than it even had been in Central Europe. The space was much bigger and it was, it was um, you know, swampy. The local Hungarian peasantry were, were very opposed to um, imperial troops passing through. It was very difficult to know who to trust. And then the Hungarian nobles who had traditionally defended the frontier and had also served in the imperial army, they were powerful and they were very difficult for Monte Cucoli to deal with. So there was a lot of dissent. There was a lot of infighting. Um, they're, you know, in essentially semi-autonomous troops led by, you know, semi-autonomous nobles kind of out there in the field struggling with these terrible um, logistical 
and financial problems with their troops who are starving and disease ridden. I mean, it would have, would have been really, really hard. And he 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 has a lot of issues with how that uh, conflict in the 1660s goes. And he writes about it in his later treatises. He has a great success at the 1664 Battle of St. Goddard, where troops that he's in command of actually turn the Ottoman army back. <laughs> it's huge. It's a huge victory. The peace that gets signed afterward is kind of undermines the victory because Emperor Leopold I first, sorry, conceded a lot. But the victory itself was just a fabulous and unexpected victory for, um, you know, Christian Europe. It was it was a big surprise. So he he had the success. They were on the verge of invading the Austrian her hereditary lands, and he was able to you know win this battle. and And then the Ottomans decided it was time to go home. <laughs> they weren't going to continue. It's not that he had routed the army, right? But they they turned they just turned back at this point. Um, so he would he I think it's another example of his career depending very much on these episodes of great battlefield success um was would he still be considered a military entrepreneur as an imperial general at this point or was he something a bit different by this time yeah i so he was definitely this is the era in which he achieved the high command of um of the army so he was the, he was the commander in chief um this is not something that you retained on a permanent basis, it was awarded to different people at different times. But this is where he was in in charge of, of the um, you know unified troops and a larger larger contingents of troops. So it absolutely was different. But of course, entrepreneurial aspects of armies continued, and um, they conti it continued into the 18th century as well. It really wasn't until the era of you know Maria Theresa that. Um, something closer to what we think of as a standing army was functioning in Habsburg, Austria. Um, and even then, there were still a lot of entrepreneurial elements with powerful and wealthy noblemen still devoting their own resources to armies. Um, but, you know, other things had changed, and um, they were able to impose uh, more order um, the estates were playing more of a role in local estates in helping um, organize and provide some financing for, for the army passing through. All right. So there's a bit of a, a difference, but he's also uh, holding a bit different uh, a title at this time. He also found himself uh, in a debate about how to fight war during this period in time. So what was this uh, debate about? So in a sense, it was the classic debate that he'd been having in his treatises as he developed his science of war about how one needs to experience war and also understand the principles of war um, and become more scientific and objective and learn how to control war. But in this case, he was dealing with the Hungarian frontier and he had a really powerful enemy or you know rival in the Hungarian um, uh, commander, and so what emerges during this time is that a, kind of like a pamphlet war and a, a campaign to influence elite court opinion from each of these men, um, who to blame for losses. The Hungarian magnates really had a different 
I would say they probably practiced war and thought about war in many of the same ways. Um, Monte Kukli claimed that they were all about glory seeking and they were too bold and unthinking. They weren't careful enough. They weren't cautious enough. They wanted to boldly go out and confront the enemy. And he associated this with a more traditional dying uh, form of art, uh, sorry, form of war. And he wanted it to be more controlled, objective, scientific, cautious, rational. Um, but honestly, they were involved. They read the same literature. They knew a lot of the same information. Um, what they had very different experiences, though, in terms of having, you know, their own territories were right there <laughs> um, on the frontier. And I think the Hungarian, you know, powerful Hungarian noblemen felt like the Habsburgs just treated their lands like a buffer zone. And this wasn't right. Um, they they didn't feel like the Habsburgs were protecting them in the way they were supposed to, the way it should have worked. And so there was a disagreement. You know, what I found was fundamentally a disagreement about what the common good was and how to um, defend against the Ottomans with an understanding of where the common good was. For Monte Kukli, it was absolutely with this Catholic Habsburg imperial world order. His family had done extremely well, um, allied to the emperor. But the Hungarian noblemen had a different experience. Um, Monte Kukli did want to conduct an, eventually conduct an offensive war against the Ottomans. The Hungarian magnates definitely did want to do that. Um, he didn't think that they were prepared to do it at that time. He thought there needed to be a whole lot more military reform, the building of a better standing, larger, better financed standing army. Um, and he he was very focused, too, on the authority of the general, of Generalissimo, the commander-in-chief. He thought all of these divided commands and all of this infighting was just terrible. Um, they really needed to centralize authority under a supreme commander, and that he, he looked at the Ottoman army as this great model. He wanted the Habsburg army to be more like the Ottoman army, he wanted the uh, commander of the Habsburg army to have the um, kind of quote-unquote despotic power that one often associated with the Ottomans at that time, right? It was one of the prevailing stereotypes about the Ottomans. Monte Kukli thought it was great for the army, that that's actually what you need. You need this stronger um, control. You need someone who, he thought a general can't even be valorous if he's constantly questioned and constantly opposed and constantly undermined. He just can't be an effective general. So he was, he, and of course he, he wanted it to be himself. He thought that he was the perfect scientific, rational person to fulfill this role. So more of a, a direct chain of command would be what he was looking for. Um, so after the war against the Ottomans, he returns to court, but he also sets out to write down um, his ideas of military theory. So what were the the main takeaways for his um, scientific approach, I guess, to warfare at this point? Right. So again, a lot of it he talks about in previous treatises, but he's focused very much, he's been very shaped by this experience um, fighting the Ottomans on the Hungar Hungarian frontier. And he's very focused on trying to adopt the, you know, what the Ottomans do well 
to try to bring that to the um, the army that he um, oversees. So he's focused on this idea of a standing army. He says it is absolutely necessary. We, you must have a large standing army that's ready at all times to go to war because the threat of war with the Ottomans is continuous. So we need to have the continuous ability to go to war. Um, he talks about the independence of the war council from other governing bodies. He he was always very disturbed by other court figures intervening in the war council when he thought they didn't have the competence to do so. The singular authority of the commander-in-chief, funding war through regular tax streams. Um, this last, this final um, treatise on the war against the Turks um, becomes his his most famous and influential treatise, in part because of this vision of a standing army, in part because he recommends on the way to attack the Ottomans in the future, but also because he goes back over the history of the Habsburg and Ottoman conflicts of the early 1660s, and he's defending his record. He's explaining what went wrong. And I think there's a huge amount of interest, especially in the immediate decade or two after the this this war was fought huge amount of interest in understanding what happened um and so he it's initially influential because people really want to know more about hungary and the the ottoman empire and this specific conflict and then after 1683 the siege of vienna this is when um austria starts to go on the offensive and they do it in ways that are very similar to what Montecuccoli recommends in this treatise. So we know Eugene of Savoy and later figures most most certainly read Montecuccoli's treatise and um, seem to have learned a lot from it. So then there's these victorious decades of conquering Eastern European territories from the Ottomans. And, uh, you know, shortly after that, Montecuccoli's treatises, which had circulated in manuscript form, were published um, and published in many versions in the early 18th century and um, just generated, I think, a whole a whole lot of interest. I think this is interesting because in the, the earlier phase when he was still alive, he felt like he was under attack all the time. And he was waging this campaign for public influence against other generals. You know, they were they were. <laughs> with pamphlets and things, you know, it's really interesting to think about generals just disseminating this information to try to control public opinion. And he was maybe not, he was, he was pretty good at it, but so were his rivals. And Zrinje, I think, was very widely admired across Europe. But it's in the decades after Montecucli's death with, with his really wonderful publications, his, his treatises, that he probably finally wins the debate. Um, these treatises are just very, very well read in the early 18th century. Right. So he's very influential. And you also mentioned in the book that he's very influential on one of the military theorists that is almost always cited, and that's Clausewitz. And so what kind of influence do you think that uh, Montecuccoli had on Clausewitz? Yeah. Okay. So that definitely it kind of goes beyond the, um, you know, much the content of the book itself, but this is where he, if you want to fit him into a timeline, you know, of military theorists, he's kind of a missing link between the age of Machiavelli and the age of Clausewitz. He um, 
again, it's his treatises. It's the way in which my sense of it is it's the way in which he has basically in the by the late 17th century collected all the knowledge on war it's his treatises have an encyclopedic quality to them he takes this encyclopedic knowledge and then he make really disciplines it according to principles pithy principles and good concrete examples and so it's these treatises are ultimately the source of a great deal of information um, for you know anyone who comes afterwards. But he really creates the model of the scientific, cautious, um, calm, methodical commander who will subvert his own, uh, sub subordinate his own personal glory. This is at least what he. He makes it it's it look like right. <laughs> of course, he was interested in personal glory, but he will subordinate that to the interests of the ruling dynasty. Um, he is emphasizing loyalty, loyalty, loyalty to the Habsburgs, and to be loyal, you have to be scientific. There's a connection in his mind between those two things. Um, to being scientific, being objective means you're not following your own personal glory. It means you're doing what needs to be done to achieve the common good. The common good is associated with this dynasty. Um, so this more cautious um, style of warfare, and he's also associated with maneuver warfare, which then became, is not something that, you know, was necessarily lauded later on, but it, in terms of how calculating he was, um, with his battlefield strategy, I think that was very influential. And would would these be the same influences that he had on uh, the generation of 1683 as well? Sure, I think that would be the beginning. Um, the the first generation that was really influenced by this um, model, but it, for them, it was more directly tied to the conquest of Eastern Europe from the Ottomans and trying to understand the immediate history and the immediate need on the on the frontier. Great. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. And so I want to ask you now the traditional last question, and that is, uh, what are you working on next? Yeah, this is the fun question at this point. Um, <laughs> I am very interested in continuing to understand what the family business of war meant and then looking at how other members of the family were involved in that, especially women. Um, one thing that emerged from this research was the importance of women as wives, marriage alliances, military contractors intermarried. Um, they married and, you know, nobilities intermarried, not just great dynasties. We know the Habsburgs intermarried. That was one of their strategies for gaining power. But um, other noble dynasties did that as well. And they moved around Europe and, and set up these kinds of trans-regional houses. So I'm interested in the role um, women played, mothers, you know, in Monte Cucoli's case, his mom was, after his father died, she was the one who helped to manage finance and helped him essentially when he was at an early phase in his career. She was extremely influential. He was extremely sad when she died. Um, so I I'd like to know more about that. It's a little harder to, to find out about, but... Um, that's that's one of the aspects I'd like to to follow up on. Well, it sounds really fascinating. Would be a, definitely a new uh, and interesting look at these military entrepreneurs and the families and how they 
operated during this period. So I want to um, thank you very much for talking with me. Um, the book is The Rise of the Military Entrepreneur by Suzanne Sutherland, and it's published by Cornell University Press. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Thank you.